as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 12 through the end of the chapter together this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 through the end of the chapter. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. I thank Him who has given me strength, Jesus, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, although I, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy, because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, The only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom or Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Amen. May God bless that reading of His Word to our hearts and to our lives. Let us pray. Our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we ask now for Your presence, uh, the Holy Spirit who inspired this text to work within us. We ask that Your Word read and preached indeed may be driven deeply into our hearts. Aid aid us and help us, O God, for we cannot worship you and even receive your word aright unless you indeed bless us. By your grace and strength we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what time the sound and and fury uh, ended at your home, but last night up until just after midnight, it seemed like we weren't just celebrating... Um, the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War, but it was the War of 1812. Bombs were bursting in air, and it was uh, thunder and lightning and uh, color and wonderful. But yet, on the other other hand, it was most terrifying to the youngest members of the family. That little dog began uh, quivering on the floor, and and then she began anxiously rubbing up against legs, and then she wanted on laps. But by the time it was all over, she wanted to climb up and be on your shoulders or on your head. Well, this morning we come again to the pastoral epistles. First uh, Timothy is the book that we sometimes have open uh, in the morning. And uh, we are looking here together at a book which is a constant source of encouragement down through the ages to the church in matters pastoral, an encouragement to the church. Uh, In previous weeks, we've looked at the first part of 1 Timothy 1, and we've noted that the book was a personal book written by the Apostle Paul to his young 
uh, apostolic aid or helper, Timothy. And there was a strong personal relationship, both personally and professionally, between the two. But it was not just intended for Timothy to read and, and keep hidden in a drawer somewhere. The book shifts in the middle of the text to the plural. And so it's, a, it's an epistle that was for Timothy, but also for all the church, to be read by Timothy with everyone else looking over his shoulder and hearing what the Apostle Paul had to say to them all. It's a book filled with pastoral import, and so it's for all the church. Paul's immediate reason for writing to Timothy is clearly stated at the beginning of the book. He was to remain in Ephesus and give strong pastoral care, protecting the flock from false teaching which had arisen in its midst. And so this morning we come to finish that first chapter. And here, Paul teaches something important for us all. He leaves us in no doubt of this fact, that the gospel changes lives. And because the gospel changes lives, there's hope for you and me. There's hope here for us all. Now Paul begins this litany of hope by talking first about himself and the fact that he had received the gospel gift of divine salvation. It's not too much to say that as Paul introduces himself in this section, that he introduces himself as a man who was once little more than a demon. Verse 13 begins, I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now Paul was not a demon in the sense that he was some uh, fallen angel who was bound over to service of Satan on some spiritual level that we cannot see with our eyes. He was but a man. But he was a man whose life was wrong. And his devotion and service he thought was to God, but he was all mixed up about the Bible and about the Christian faith. He had grown up a good uh, Jew. He had had gotten his education and, and he had become a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says. But yet he was busy in the service of darkness rather than light. His zeal was unbounded. His knowledge of the Word of God was only really partial. He had twisted and misunderstood the basic outline and purpose of the great covenant of grace. Oh, Paul was a demon. He not only spoke against and opposed the Christian faith, but he also rejoiced when Christians were hounded and rounded up and handed over to the government and even killed. He himself smiled at the stoning of Saul, or the stoning of Stephen. And he was one who sought to undo the Christian faith. His goal was to rid humanity of the evil that Jesus had perpetrated. Paul was in the service of demons. But he became an object of divine mercy. Verse 12 says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, 
though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul here is stumbling over his words. He's standing back and looking at the broad sweep of his life and he just can't believe that God would be so merciful as to save a sinner like him. He had done the worst sorts of things. He had persecuted the people of God. And God, the Son of God incarnate, risen and resurrected from the very throne of God in heaven, had broken into his world and had spoken a command, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so he let Saul know that he was opposed to God in heaven as he persecuted the people of Christ. Oh, Saul, now turned Paul, was absolutely gobsmacked at the thought that God would save a sinner like him. You see, he was a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we are told. And there's a pithy saying, a faithful saying that Paul records here. Easy for Christians to memorize, to remember and to encourage one another with. It's found beginning in verse 14 or 15. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Sin was bad. Paul knew that from his study of the law. And he felt the weight, Paul did, the weight of his sin and of his guilt. He felt that weight and responsibility and shortcoming. And so he knew that he was a sinner. And he was bold enough, even in his old age, to proclaim to all the church and all the world, that he was the worst sinner of all time. You know, last Sunday we had the Lord's table here, and and on the table were the elements that Christ has appointed, uh, bread and the cup. Now, in the old days, we wouldn't have just had one table. We, we would have had a whole set of them. We would have had them down the aisles, maybe the aisles much larger. There would have been benches and, and segments of the congregation, one after another, would have come for the communion season and they would have sat around the table. We would have shared that fellowship Christian meal of the Lord's Supper together. We call it the Lord's Table, not just because it has four legs, but it's the place where we eat and feast a covenant renewal meal before our God in the elements that He has appointed that we might love Him and serve Him and be united to Him all the more. And as we approach the Lord's Table, there are two opposite feelings that we always bring. One is great joy and excitement and thanksgiving. It is indeed a time of celebration of the Lord's Supper. But we also come in sadness, in humility and shame for our sins, feeling the need of a Savior, seeing in symbolic form there that His body was broken, that His blood was shed, that He died on the cross of Calvary for sinners like us. In Paul's faithful saying formula, 
he strikes the proper balance. On the one hand, he rejoices in the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But then on the other hand, he concedes humbly that he himself is the chief sinner of all. Oh, we, we do well as we think about the gift of divine salvation to remember the wonderful bounty which God supplies of salvation full and free who all will come and trust in Him and look to Him alone for their salvation. And as believers, we should especially be willing to confess that not a day has gone by in which we are not a sinner and that we ourselves fall far short of the glory of God, that we have no ground in ourselves for boasting, but rather our only boast is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God for Him. Paul received that gospel gift, and I hope you have as well. But then he shifts. He shifts his attention from himself in his own life to that of his understudy, Timothy. Timothy's life was also changed. Timothy received a gospel gift of divine calling. We read something about that in verse 18. This charge I entrusted to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Here was Timothy, one who had been Paul's understudy and servant, one who would aid his ministry. He had been drafted into apostolic service. Remember, Paul was an apostle, and so he extends the ministry of Christ, who is the cornerstone of the church. The cornerstone of the building of the church is extended by the apostles and the prophets. And so all that is built up in the Christian church, each and every one of us as living stones to His glory, we all rest upon that foundation cornerstone and its extension in the apostles and prophets. Timothy had a unique calling and a unique ministry. That was to aid and to serve and to abet the apostle to the Gentiles, even the apostle Paul, to encourage and help him in his work And the particular assignment that he was given on this occasion was to remain in Ephesus and to continue Paul's ministry in that place. Verse 3 of chapter 1 is where Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. There were those in the church that were twisting the Old Testament Word of God. They they had mixed it together with some Eastern teaching and Greek philosophy and, and they put it in the oven and cooked it until it was a fine pottage of a mess. They were doling this out to the local church, acting as if they were superior in their knowledge and understanding and teaching. And so the Apostle Paul knew that the church was in great spiritual need. His solution was practical. Even though he was being called by the Holy Spirit to go elsewhere, to continue fulfilling his apostolic ministry, he would leave Timothy behind in that place to provide pastoral care and to preach and teach faithfully the Word of God. Timothy 
was drafted into such service. And what a great responsibility it was for him. The future of that church and so many others would hang on the success of his mission. But Timothy did not have to do this work in and of himself, just by his own natural wit and power. He did it with the aid of supernatural gifts and abilities that God had given him, as Paul mentions here in relationship to prophecy previously made about Timothy uh, that he might hold to the faith and live a good life in his work. Over in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy and in verse 14, we hear more detail. Do not, Timothy, neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, I'm eager to point out that uh, this is a Presbyterian assembly here in 1 Timothy. Timothy was one who had had a whole council of elders, not just one, but a plurality of elders, uh, gifts and graces bestowed on them by Christ. And they together laid hands on this young man that he might have the suitable gifting and an assignment that he might faithfully live a life of good and bounty for God. The gifts bestowed were bestowed by Christ. Every spiritual gift comes from heaven, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, down into the life of Timothy and you and me. Timothy did not have to face the wiles of the devil and those that were fooled and served him and his minions. He did not have to face heresies and temptation and persecution and threats all on his own by his own strength and emotion. No, he had the gifting of the Holy Spirit and he was able to preach and teach and stand the heat of the day in the crucible of life as God had allotted him in the calling as a servant of an apostle and of Christ in his church. Timothy received this appointment, and this public acknowledgement is something that Paul reminds him of, that he might know that there are many others who look to him and to remember what God had said and what his church had done, uh, that he might faithfully labor in gospel ministry in that place. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and me. You see, not only has he held out our good God, the gift of divine salvation, that he holds us out Christ crucified for each and every one to see, and he calls and commands us to come and follow him. But he also gives all of his children a divine gift and a divine calling, each and every one according to his eternal plan and his need to fully bless and equip the church. In this particular place, as it focuses upon the divine calling of ministry and pastoral care, it is all of our joy to aid and abet and work together for the fullness of the gospel ministry in this place. God has blessed us with a pastor. He he has equipped him and trained him and prepared him for just a time as this. He has given our pastor Fred Greco to us as a gift to Christ's church so that this place is not our own. We we don't own it. We, We recognize and we confess 
that it is the church owned by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so He is the one who meets every spiritual need that we have. Together, under pastoral leadership provided by the Lord, each and every one according to gifts and graces, calling and station, we pull the plow together, we work together to joyfully serve the Lord and seek to see the nations evangelized and discipled that the bounty of the crop of the grace of God might be brought into His church. This is something that we all enjoy and a calling that we have all received. But Timothy and Paul are not the only ones mentioned in this inspired epistle. There are two good eggs that are mentioned and then there are two bad eggs that are mentioned. You know, whenever... Whenever the Lord in His Word names the name of someone who is busy doing something evil or naughty, we we perk up our ears and we should rightly in our own hands hold our heart and ask the question, Lord, is it me? Hymenaeus and Alexander are mentioned as having received a gospel gift of divine church discipline. They were members of the church. They were in the fellowship at Ephesus. They operated in the life of the church in some kind of teaching capacity. And most scholars agree that at one point or another, they had been elders in the life of the church. But they had rejected the Christian faith and the Christian life and suffered shipwreck of their faith. Verse 19 speaks of this. By rejecting this, that is, faith and good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. These two individuals were in a broad set or class that in the visible church had rejected the Christian faith and life. Now that may sound like a very strange thing to you. People in the visible church who reject the faith and Christian life with a good conscience. But this is something which our Lord has always told us to anticipate. Even from before the day of Pentecost, from before the time of His own resurrection or His own crucifixion before, in teaching His disciples, Jesus told them in advance that the wheat and tares always grow together and faith and life always go together in the Christian church. You see, to suffer corruption of one inevitably involves an impact on the other. Lose your faith and your life, your Christian walk in life will begin to spiral down. There will be moral and spiritual consequences to a lack of holding to the faith once delivered to the saints. And the inverse is true. Claim and boast to hold strongly to the truth of God's Word, but have wandering eyes and wandering feet and and allow yourself to live like the devil and it will affect the grip of your other hand. We lose Christian life and faith together in the same moment 
in the same movement of heart and life. And here, by calling out these two, Paul is warning us all of the dangers that lurk in the dark for each one of us. I remember years ago at the seminary, there was a young man who was quite gifted. He was quite able. He was a an excellent student and some, something of a budding scholar. And, and he did his work faithfully and, and he always asked penetrating and excellent questions. You could see in the first two years that his mind and heart were growing for the Lord. But then something happened. There was a change in the way he looked and interacted and spoke and didn't speak. The The quality of his work and his devotion and fire for the Lord seemed to dim. One day he walked into an old professor's office, shut the door, and he said, Tell me one more time why we believe in the resurrection. It was a very basic question. Something that should have been answered, quite frankly, long before he got to the seminary. But certainly in in the class on the Gospels that he'd taken two years before, these kinds of questions and and the theological implications he already had covered. He knew these things. And so the the wise old professor looked him square in the eye and he said, Now son, what's really wrong? And the young man broke down in tears. His His marriage was in shambles. He and his wife weren't speaking. There there was tension in their home. There there was no hope of heaven in his heart because he was out of whack in all of his relationships of life. Like a cascade, it had run through his heart. But Hymenaeus and Alexander, having having gone astray in doctrine and in life, they are marked out for our benefit to warn us against a similar fate. They suffered shipwreck of their life spiritually. As we compare Scripture with Scripture and look through the rest of the pastorals, we learn that Hymenaeus taught that the general resurrection had already happened in the past, that there was no future resurrection. And so he was a man who dared to teach an error which robbed suffering Christians, some of whom had experienced persecution and death, no doubt, in their families, and looked and longed for the hope of resurrection day when Jesus would come again. He stole from them that gospel hope and left them broken and torn because of his false teaching. We read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And Alexander was a coppersmith. He was a man whose life can best be summarized in one word, arrogant. He was an arrogant man who dared to stand in public against the Apostle Paul, chosen directly by Jesus Christ after His resurrection for gospel service to the Gentiles. He dared to accuse the Apostle Paul of misunderstanding the whole basis of the Christian faith. What sweeping arrogance of mind and heart and life. Theological innovation 
is never a good thing. Don't be attracted to those who have a new and enlightened doctrine that will change all of life. You sit back and smilingly say to yourself, well, let's give it a hundred years and we'll see what it's like. And arrogance... Arrogance in the life of one who claims to be a teacher in the church. Arrogance is death to the soul. It's a putrid, stinking rot at the very heart of a man's life. Oh, we need to recognize the depth of, and the extent of damage of the shipwreck suffered by these two men. But the strange thing about our text to our own mind is that the Apostle Paul does not say, I took these two wicked and evil men out behind the woodshed and I shot them dead. That's what we would want to do. Or that I took these two wicked and evil people and I damned them to hell like the sons of thunder had asked Jesus for the power to do previously in the Gospels. No, Paul. Paul speaks in solemn spiritual terms. I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here is Paul's language of exercising proper divine biblical church discipline. You see, the purpose of church discipline is not to destroy. The purpose is to protect the flock on the one hand and the honor of Christ on the other, while also using an amazing spiritual remedy to aid one to come back in repentance and faith renewed. They were handed over to Satan, Paul says. That means they were removed from their seat at the Lord's table. They could no longer sit in the most intimate of spiritual fellowship among believers. They were excluded from that worship event and made objects of concern and compassion, objects of evangelism that they might come to their senses and ultimately their souls might be saved. They were Believers by profession, whose profession of faith had now ceased to be credible because of the wrong-headed doctrine and wrong-headed living in which they were engaged. And Paul's language includes the hope that they may learn not to blaspheme and rather come back to Christ in faith. Oh, my friends, we have in the life and history of our own congregation and uh, in the experience of many in the life of the church broadly in other places, uh, we can testify to the fact that God uses this solemn act of biblical church discipline as a means of blessing and mercy that people might be brought back into full fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They who have been through such a process and have been restored to Jesus would be the first to say what a blessing, loving discipline can be. And so we thank God for them. And we thank God for His restoring. And we thank God for their lives lived in glory to God after that. The good news of the gospel in 1 Timothy chapter 1 
is that the gospel changes lives. And do you see how good that is for you and me? Because if God can change the life of Paul, if he can change the life of Timothy, if if he can hold out hope even to men like Hymenaeus and Alexander, then that gives you and me a hope of gospel blessing and change as well. What do we do? We look to the Lord. We look to Him in faith. We ask for the blessing of His Holy Spirit that we might be more and more progressively changed into His image as His Word is read and preached and sung and prayed and seen in the sacraments that He gives. You look to Christ and you will know gospel transformation. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that you might aid us and help us that we might live our Christian lives to your glory rather than to shame. We thank you for the gift of divine salvation. And we ask that you would aid us in professing to the world freely and fully that Christ came into the world for sinners like us and that we might also add, along with Paul, that we are the chief of sinners too. We pray for the gospel gift of divine calling and spiritual gifts in our midst, that you might use each and every member here to shine the light of gospel truth, to hold out the hand of gospel evangelism and discipleship, that your name might be praised in all the earth. And we ask, O God, that you might even restore and strengthen, that you might have your name blessed even by the wiles of the devil being used as only you can in your sovereignty for your good and gracious ends. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.